Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. So this is a very uh, special episode. Uh, it's a kind of a little bit off track from what I normally uh, carry, but I thought this would be a very interesting episode to uh, talk about because there's actually a new miniseries debuting this Thursday on the ABC television network here in the United States, as well as on Hulu. And uh, we have a gentleman here who his book was based on this documentary, uh, the series, which is called Women of the Movement. It's season one premieres on January 6th. And of this six-parter, it was primarily based on your book, um, Emmett Till, The Murderer That Shocked the World and Propelled the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, Devery Anderson, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks, Steve. It's great to be here. So I just want to give you a little intro on Devery. Uh, he earned a BA in history from the University of Utah and a master's in publishing from George Washington University. He is the editor or co-editor of four books related to Mormons in the West, two of which won the Stephen F. Christensen Award for Best Documentary from the Mormon History Association. Um, and let's see, he had his book published, the Emmett Till book published by the University of Mississippi in 2015. It was almost uh, then it was picked up uh, to be produced. Uh, Anderson spent three weeks on location in Sumner, Mississippi last March, where he played one of the 12 jurors in the murder trial scenes filmed for the series, so watch for him. Uh, his forthcoming book, A Slow Calculated Lynching, The Story of Clyde Kennard, will be published by the University Press of Mississippi next fall. He is the marketing manager for Signature Books, a scholarly Mormon-focused publishing house in Salt Lake City. Uh, he is the father of three and the grandfather of two. And you just had that second grandchild just a few weeks ago, correct? Right, yeah, two weeks ago on Friday. That's very exciting. So, you know, it just dawned on me, I was thinking earlier today, you know, as throughout the years as I've been building my book collection, I, I thought, you know, by golly, I think the public publisher that I have most of the books, like the largest amount of books that I've accumulated throughout the years has been um, signature books. And since now that I've started this channel, I've been having you guys also sending me books. Uh, so I, I've had a relationship with signature books. You guys just didn't know it until recently. <laughs> so I want to thank you so much for blessing me, Devery, uh, sending me many of the books and the authors. For instance, I'm going to have uh, Dan Vogel's interview released this Friday. Um, his big book of Abraham book you sent to me uh, right away. And so that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was first of all, to thank you and Signature Books for the wonderful relationship that we've developed. And I also wanted to talk about this fascinating book, but before we get there, why don't you give us a little bit about your background, um, just your faith background and your personal background. All right. Well, uh, until I was 10 years old, my family uh, uh, was all my mother and all of her sister, most of her sisters and my grandmother, we were all Baptists, attended a Baptist church in Longview, Washington. And then when I was 10 years old, some uh, LDS missionaries came knocking on our door and uh, we took the missionary discussions uh, from them. And uh, a couple months later, my mother and father and my brother who was still at home and me were, were baptized. Over time, my other two brothers joined the church, my grandmother and three or four of my mom's sisters and their families. So we kind of had to switch from this Baptist church and slowly everybody uh, became LDS after that. And um, uh, so, and I went on a mission to London, England and uh, developed an interest in Mormon history when I was at Rick's college. And uh, it just developed uh, from there, and I began subscribing to, began hearing about and learning about the scholarly journals and magazines that dealt with Mormon history, and it was so refreshing to see stuff from that perspective and not uh, strictly from church-published sources. I didn't even know these other sources existed, and it was a breath of fresh air to read the scholarly history that I had been hoping, I guess, hoping existed out there that I wasn't really even aware of and even knew that I was looking for it until I started reading it. And I thought, wow, this is, this is what I've been looking for. And so ever since then, it's just been an interest for a long time. I was just uh, uh, soaking up what other people had done. In 1994, my family and I moved to Salt Lake City uh, for me to attend the University of Utah. We moved from Longview, Washington, where I was born and raised. And then once I moved here to Salt Lake, I had more opportunities to research myself. And so then I took an interest in various subjects and started doing research and then got connected with Signature Books to uh, pu start publishing with them. And then that led to me working for them. 
a few years later. So now I, I have this career in Mormon studies, uh, helping market and uh, market these great books that Signature Books produces. And so it's been a, a fun journey. So those missionaries coming to my tour door when I was 10, um, they didn't realize at the time, but they were opening so many doors <laughs> for me because I don't think I ever would have uh, published the Emmett Till book had I not moved to Utah and had I not uh, had my foot in the door a little bit with publishing and with writing and getting published uh, with the Mormon studies stuff I had done. I've done some articles. I wrote a four-part history of the journal dialogue and some other stuff. And so all this stuff kind of just really paved the way. And it was my, it was my interest in Mormon history and the the policy of, of black priesthood and temple denial that really led to the Emmett Till. I mean, it was directly led to the Emmett Till interests that followed. Interesting. I just want to go back a little bit in time to when you were 10 years old and you were still a Baptist. Just out of curiosity, were, did you as a child uh, do like pray like the sinner's prayer and ask Jesus into your heart uh, type kind of thing as a child, as a Baptist? You know, what, what I remember from that, I, I remember when I was uh, a, a year and a half or so before we joined the LDS church, our minister, they were a great family, and, and there it was a, a Pastor McKay, and I remember he had a son named David, and so I, I knew this name David McKay when I became LDS, I thought, oh, that's the same, that president of the church, same name as our minister's son, but one Saturday, the minister family was at a beach uh, and two of his kids were riding on a log um, letting the waves kind of carry him around a big wave came up knocked the children off and one of those one of their children was killed and I remember after that at church the next day and they, the family came to church that very next day it was just amazing that they were the rest of them were sitting there one daughter was hospitalized because she broke her pelvis on that log but the rest of the family was there just bravely sitting there and from that moment the church just became very close and it led so many people to come up every week after church to come forward and accept Christ. And I remember that went on for weeks and weeks. And I remember I wanted to do it really bad. I don't remember much. I don't remember anything about a sinner's prayer or, or, or what, what the, the method was for uh, accepting Christ. It's been a long time, but I remember wanting every week to go up there and I was just too scared to get up in front of anybody I had this I was very shy and self-conscious back then and I remember one time I started to get up and then I got scared and sat back down and I, that's all I remember from trying to really involve myself and to take the steps that I felt you know that had been preached to us then to come forward and accept Christ so I remember it was on my mind a lot. And I remember overhearing my aunt and my mother once in the kitchen when I was in the living room saying, you know, Devery really needs to get saved. And I thought, oh, what's going to happen to me? I, I was just so worried about it, but I was scared to death to, to come forward. That was the main thing. And everybody got baptized in front of the whole congregation. The baptismal font was right behind the choir. And so when you got baptized, it was in front of everybody at the church service and I was scared to death to do that too so I think I would have done that and I would have been you know felt happy and that it was a very important step for me at the time but fear just kept me away from it very interesting I just love to hear those stories from people that have been their past and their conversion stories and all that I, I so you said that basically it was you studying uh, the blacks being denied the priesthood and all that um, is what led you to your research into Emmett Till. Could you perhaps talk a little bit about that? Yes, I remember. I can't remember when I first learned about uh, the, the denial of the priesthood and temple blessings to Black members, but I remember once I heard about it, and I was a kid, by the time I went on my mission, it, it, that had been done away with, and so we didn't have to deal with it, which was kind of a good thing, because in London, most of the people that we taught and baptized uh, were all Black. And they just were embracing the LDS church like crazy at that time. Um, I often wondered, should we bring it up? Should we not? But that was a whole different uh, worry that came in the aftermath of that uh, policy being done away with. But I remember hearing the usual stuff about, I would ask questions, why, why can't, and I didn't think much about the temple blessings at the time. I just saw it as black priesthood, male priesthood denial at the time. 
And uh, I remember asking questions, getting different responses. Once we had a, a youth fireside where we could ask the bishopric any question we wanted, I asked about that. And the answer was just, you know, everybody in their own time, it's when God wants it, it'll happen. And I remember for years, honestly believing, and even in the years after, you know, when I was on my mission and the years, early years after coming back, I honestly was able in my mind to think, to get upset whenever anyone called Mormons racist for that, because I could just pin it on God, say, we don't know why it happened, but God wants it this way. But we have, don't call us racist because we're not, we're just, we're dying for this to happen. God just won't let us do it. And then I'd hear the usual, you know, I'd kind of say the usual stuff about um, uh, blacks were valiant in the pre-existence, just because I'd been taught that stuff and I didn't really think much about it. I didn't, when I was a kid, you know, I wasn't thinking much of what this meant in terms of race and all of that, this kind of stuff that hit me later on. But uh, I remember once I read in dialogue uh, Lester Bush's groundbreaking article on the history of that policy, I felt this sense of relief that I could throw away all those things I'd been taught and was, I guess, trying to defend for so many years. It was just like taking this load off of me and just tossing it. It was such a relief to not see it as anything God ever wanted, uh, that it was just a policy enacted from, you know, racist church leaders who saw that this, believed that this was right. And no longer did I have to defend it and was never comfortable doing that anyway. I would just come up with anything to get non-members off my back. And it was just a relief. And so this happened, well, and then um, I went, I returned to school and I was, uh, I, I had taught a priesthood lesson around this time. It was in the early nineties. I taught a priesthood lesson about, and I talked about the, the black policy that, you know, the erstwhile policy. And I remember saying to some, to the elders quorum about these, this folklore that had been taught in the church about, and that a lot of people still believed apparently, because I, I said to the, to the elders quorum brethren, I hope no one here believes that stuff anymore. Well, one guy in there who did believe it turned me into the stake president and the stake president wrote me a letter chastising me saying, we don't know why God withheld the priesthood. So don't say things like that. So in other words, don't defend, you know, an anti-racist policy, uh, defend what we've always taught about it. And that didn't sit well with me at all. And it was right around that time or shortly after that in the larger uh, African-American experience outside of Mormonism, the case of Medgar Evers went to trial 31 years after he was murdered or 30 years, yeah, 31 years after he was murdered and his killer was finally convicted. And when I saw that happen 30 years later, I became very interested in the larger African-American experience. Then within a few months, I, was, uh, I had learned about the Emmett Till case and started uh, my research. So up at that point, you hadn't heard of Emmett Till uh, until you started no, your research? No, never heard Emmett Till's name until uh, September of 1994. It was months earlier, about seven months earlier in February of 94 that Medgar Evers' killer was convicted. And when that happened, I just started wanting to learn more about African-American history. And it took seven months, but I uh, encountered Emmett Till when I rented a, a videotape from the library in Salt Lake City. So when you first heard, came across the story, how did it affect you? Well, when I first came across, I, I, I had rented this video and it was called Eyes on the Prize. And it was a six or seven volume history of the civil rights movement, all on videotape back then. I just checked out the first episode and the first episode dealt with Emmett Till and then the Montgomery bus boycott that followed that. And the first 15 minutes was centered on Emmett Till. And that was my introduction. And when I watched that 15 minute segment, I was just blown away because it showed what these men did to this 14 year old boy, these grown men kidnapping him and murdering him, uh, beating him and then throwing his and shooting him and then throwing his body in the river, the Tallahatchie River, where it sat for three days before he was found. And so his face between the beating he took and the decomposition was uh, it was just a, a, a horrific sight. And they showed that on the video. And it was a photo that uh, 
Black America saw in 1955 as this unfolded, and it helped galvanize uh, the Black community towards, you know, seeking justice for him, but uh, in launching the civil rights movement, or at least propelling it forward more than it had been thus far. And so when I saw that photo, it had the same effect on me that it did people who saw it in real time when they were filing past his, past his casket in 1955. And I was just horrified. And then as I continued watching that to see how the men were acquitted of his murder, that angered me. And then how they sold their story uh, to a reporter for uh, over $3,000, which back then would have been, you know, 10, you know, 30, you know, around 40,000 today. I was just angered that, and then I, I wanted to know whatever happened to them, if they ever suffered at all, or if they ever faced any consequences, if their life, if their lives are prosperous, if their lives went downhill, I had to know what happened to them. And I also want to know what happened to Emmett Till's mother, because she kind of disappeared, at least in my mind, I didn't know a lot about the civil rights movement then. And so since I hadn't heard of Emmett Till, I hadn't, I didn't know whatever happened to his mother and she, he was an only child. And so this was her, her only child. And I wanted to know if she lived, if she was ever, ever attained any happiness. I really wanted to know how she was. And so I just had all these questions. I was so horrified by that photo that I was just depressed and angered. And I just felt like I had to do something. So I kept studying this case immediately um, after seeing that video. I, I tried to find more information about it. And that was kind of a quest for 10 years until I started researching the actual book I wrote. So, wow, that's very interesting. So um, just so our audience knows, I mean, maybe talk a little bit about what the fate of those men who did kill Emmett, what, what did you uncover there? Well, uh, the two that were acquitted, who were tried and acquitted, because uh, it turns out there were other people involved who never did see the inside of a courtroom, but the two who uh, were arrested and tried at the time they, one of them died in 1980 from uh, cancer, uh, died on New Year's Eve 1980 as it was going into 1981. And then uh, the second one, Roy Bryant, died in September 1994. In fact, the same month I discovered the case and he had cancer also. Most of the siblings in that family and the parents died of cancer. It was just uh, ran in their family. They tended to die young. Uh, and at least by the time they're in their early 60s, most of them and uh, cancer took them out. And in, both of them left Mississippi for a while uh, after, the, after the acquittal, after they sold their story, because they saw themselves as, when they sold the story, that they would be um, seen as heroes. And because they had been up until that point, the white community tended to side with them because they knew that if these men were acquitted, there'd be this domino effect that, segregation would fall as a result of that and so people wanted them acquitted but once they talked about it publicly and got paid for it people tended to not want anything to do with them and so they left Mississippi but they both came back in time and when they came back uh, J.W. Milam the older one came back in the early 60s and the other one came back Roy Bryant came back in 1973 but this was an uh, era before the internet and 24-hour news, all of that. So they were both able to return to their communities and just live quietly. When they died, neither one of them, uh, the news didn't report it. Uh, delayed on, one of them never got reported ever. And the second one, Roy Bryant, uh, managed to die under the radar, but a very astute uh, reporter named, um, um, can't think of his name, <laughs> a fan of the famous reporter now, I feel dumb. I interviewed him in 2009. Um, he, uh, he found out about it and later wrote an article uh, in, in one of the newspapers in Mississippi that he was a columnist for. But both of them pretty much lived quietly in their communities. Most people didn't know who they were. And even if they did, people at that point just kind of just learned to live with their presence in their community, so. So in the process of you doing all this research, it actually brought you had the opportunity to meet Emmett Till's mother. Right, I interviewed her over the phone in December of 1996, about two years after discovering the case. And I interviewed her for a class project. It took a while to get the interview, or this was before the inter internet. Well, the internet was around then. I think I had the internet at the time, but 
I don't know that I could find out her information online too easily back then. So I went to the Salt Lake City Library and got a Chicago phone book and looked her up and there she was in the book. And so I called her, I wrote her and then I called her and she agreed to an interview and it got delayed a couple of times, but we sat and talked for a long time. And then that led to a six year uh, friendship with her. I never got to meet her in person, but we talked over the phone monthly or sometimes a couple times a month for the next six years until her passing. My last phone call with her, she told me that the, uh, there was a good chance the case was going to be reopened by the uh, Justice Department. And then it was uh, about a year and a half later, but she knew it was coming. She didn't get to live to see it, unfortunately. So you basically did this class project in 1996. When did you start um, doing your research to actually start writing the book? Well, at first, you know, after I interviewed her, she told me she was trying to raise money to move Emmett's grave from the cemetery where it was at because she felt it wasn't being kept up properly and she wanted to move him where some prominent black Chicagoans, like the first black mayor, were all buried. She needed to raise $30,000 to do that and to erect a monument. And I, because she was doing it alone, I asked her if I could help with that. She said, sure. So I devoted my time for a long time trying to, to raise that money for her. It never happened because the cemetery promised to move him uh, themselves and, and erect an Emmett Till Memorial or historical center on site there. And then a big scandal happened there that was a whole different subject, but it happened after she died. So she had changed her mind. And so when she died in 2003 and, the, and then the, when the federal government opened the case a year later, that's when I decided that I would do the book because I knew that this investigation would lead to, if it didn't lead to any arrests and convictions of anybody still living, I knew they would learn a lot about the murder because I knew they would have to exhume his body. They could do an autopsy finally, find out how he died exactly. Uh, the trial transcript had been missing for years and I thought, you know, they're gonna probably find a copy of that somewhere and they found the murder weapon, so all this stuff. And so when I knew that this investigation was coming, I thought, you know, I've got a final chapter ready to go that will include this investigation. By the time I'm done up to that point in my research and writing, I'm sure the investigation will be over. And so I will be writing a book about a historical case where I don't know the ending yet. It's kind of a odd, uh, that rarely happens, I suppose, but I, uh, so in 2004, I decided, in the summer of 2004, I decided I would start working on it. Uh, it kind of happened uh, when the investigation, in May of 2004, when the investigation opened. And then it took me 10 years to research and write the book um, after making a bunch of trips to the South in Chicago. Wow, so you started in 96, and the book was published in 2015, correct? Yeah, so that first 10 years from, from 2004 or 1994, and then especially after 2000 or after 96, when I met or began talking to Emmett's mother, I was just mainly trying to uh, you know, help her raise that money. And I was trying to make people aware of the case. So I was always talking about it to people and driving them crazy. But I wanted everybody to know about Emmett Till because it was such a horrific thing and such an injustice that these people got away with murder and that other people never even, there were at least three other white men uh, involved and some other field hands that were kind of forced to be involved, but the three other white men were the ones that really should have stood trial for actual murder, first degree murder, like the other two were. And uh, so, uh, yeah, so then that 10 years of kind of preparing myself and then 10 years of actively researching and writing the book. Uh, so in a way you can look at it as a 20 year project, in a way a 10 year project, and I kind of refer to both depending on how dramatic I want to sound at the moment. So, oh, very, very interesting. So, just, just to, to do something like that, like for basically for much of the time you're doing it, you were never intending on writing a book. You were doing this as a labor of love of something that you felt was so important just as a human being that the story needed to be known. And you developed a friendship with Emmett's mother. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, and um, the book itself, there, there had been a couple of books out. One was really good. One was not so good. And that was it for a long time. And then other books came uh, about uh, some novels that were good, uh, but that, that kind of led to more interest in the case. And then 
some books, some academic studies about how the Northern press and the Southern press dealt with the murder trial, how the Mississippi press dealt with it. And so there were books like that that started coming out, but no one had just sat down and done a comprehensive telling of the story and trying to really work through some of the contradictions in the, in the case. Because witnesses said one thing in 1955 and their memories would tell something different decades later. And some of those stories got put in documentaries where documentaries, you can just kind of say what's on your mind and, and you don't really vet that stuff. And, uh, the, and the producers don't always either. And so I knew there was a lot of contradictory material. I knew there were a lot of twists and turns and stories that never really got talked about. And I thought this stuff is stranger than fiction. And so I wanted to write a book that would tell the whole story in a lot of detail and try to correct all the myths at the same time. So that's why that took 10 years. But it was really the book I always wanted to read. I was always hoping somebody would like write this where I could sit and kind of just, oh, there's all my questions answered. And since I didn't ever find that book, I thought, well, I can at least try to write it, see if it uh, works. And, and it's been well received for that reason. You know, that's, you know, I can kind of understand where you're coming from. I tell people, if somebody was doing the show that I'm doing, the channel that I'm doing, then I would just watch it. I wouldn't necessarily have to do it. You know, it's kind of that I'm just doing it because nobody else is kind of doing what I'm doing. So I get you completely yeah. on that one. Um, so you spent all this time on this book um, and what, just so the University of Mississippi Press, how did, how did you get hooked up with them? And just to correct that, it's it's the University Press of Mississippi. Uh, sorry, because it's sorry associated with all eight of their public universities. So just just so you know, it's larger than just one. Got it. Um, they uh, well, I knew I tried to get an agent and tried to get it published with a national publisher, but being a first time, I mean, I had my Mormon studies books, but I didn't really think those would pave. Apparently, didn't pave the way because I would put those as references in my uh, submissions, but nobody seemed to care. But I wrote several, uh, I tried to get agents on several occasions. The one who agreed to do it uh, died shortly after, just suddenly died. His partner uh, then changed her mind midway after we started getting going. And then other, other agents just sent me form letters saying, um, looks like a great project, we wish you luck, but we're not taking on any more books right now, we're swamped. So after that, and I knew that the University Press of Mississippi published this very type of thing. And I don't want to say I did it as a last resort because they've been very good. I mean, they've done, they designed and edited the book brilliantly and they've always been very supportive. They're always accessible to me. They're always willing to promote it when something comes up like the series right now. So it's been a very good um, experience with them. But I, I went to them because I knew that, you know, obviously this is a Mississippi case. Um, they publish a lot of stuff on civil rights, and I just thought that they would do it, and they did. They, they jumped on it right away, and they didn't make me cut anything, which was nice. Uh, they just did very light copy editing for the most part, and so I was, I was really pleased with all of that because you write a book, and the hardest thing is cutting. You know, you feel like you're giving up one of your children, you know, and so uh, it was nice not to have to. This next one, I have to do some revisions, uh, do a little bit of cutting. It was too long, but uh, that's fine. I, the Emmett Till one, I think, had to be done the way I did it. I would have probably fought a lot harder uh, to cut on that one than I'm more willing on the second one. So. so what was it like to have your book released and then all of a sudden it get optioned by Hollywood? I mean, was, did that catch you off guard or, or what was that like? Yeah, it did. Um, I got a call from a producer. I actually got the call before the book came out. They knew about it. I already signed the contract and they learned about it and uh, asked me if I would be you know, willing to do it. And they sounded pretty reputable that they had experience. They talked about who, who the uh, A-listers were that wanted to be involved and, or that were going to be involved. And so we did it. And um, and when a book gets optioned, I think it's, I don't know, one in 10 that ever get anywhere. And so that was seven years ago. So it took seven years for, well, you know, it took five years, I guess, before it finally got uh, where a permanent home. It was going to go to HBO 2016. Uh, they signed on for it. So right away we saw, all right, you know, HBO wants to do this miniseries. And then about a year and a half after they signed on, they um, passed on it. And so uh, 
I'm not really sure why. I think they had some other programs similar in the works or something, or if it just stalled in time and then the, the, the producers got it back. I'm not quite sure exactly what happened. Um, and then they shopped it around for, until 2019 when ABC got it. So it took four and a half years for ABC to come along. And then another year after that in August of 2020, that they greenlit the project. And so once that happened, everything just started happening. They started, you know, the writer was going full force on the uh, screenplay. They started hiring cast right away and doing a lot of auditions and that. And then within, by January of 2021, it was being filmed and it took from January to April to film it. So uh, it's exciting to have it done and now it's gonna come out in three days. So. And so what was it like to participate on a, on a set and be uh, one of the extras in the jury? Well, it was really, it was exciting. And I, and I really wanted, you know, I thought of all times, you know, something like this happens, you know, usually once in a lifetime, and then a pandemic happens once in a lifetime, and we got them both at the same time, you know, so I thought, this is horrible luck, you know, because, um, you know, normally, I think you'd be able to, I could have just gone on set and sat in the background and watched a lot of this happen, and just enjoy watching it get filmed, but um, with COVID, uh, they were letting anybody on set that wasn't essential, even the executive producers, there wasn't one executive producer that was there for the filming. And all my, all my adult life that I'd known about Emmett Till, in my mind, I'd always envisioned what it was like, or tried to envision what it was like to be in that courtroom during that murder trial. In 2015, uh, I guess 14 and 15, it was dedicated, I think, but uh, the courthouse, the courtroom was renovated to look like it did during the Emmett Till trial. And they did a great job. It cost two or $3 million to renovate that courtroom, but they made it look just like it did. And so when the producers were scouting for, uh, or when the location scout was trying to find a place to shoot the trial, they could have built a soundstage where it would have been much more convenient to move walls and do all the stuff that you do in a soundstage. But they saw the courtroom and thought, this thing looks like it did, thanks to the, you know, restoring it years ago. Let's film here. And once I learned they were filming in the actual courtroom where this thing happened, I thought I've got to be in there because all those dramatic moments that I read about and wrote about in the courtroom, I can see those take place again and be filmed. And everybody would be dressed in 50s clothing. It would feel like just like being there. And so I knew that, okay, so to do that, I've got to be in it. But I knew they'd need a lot of people for those scenes because you have to fill the gallery with spectators and they would need, you know, police, deputies and other people. But, you know, the, I thought I could be guaranteed a spot in all the scenes if I was a juror because those 12 jurors stay the same. And so I just uh, had one of my friends who was a producer write someone with, in casting and if I could, that I'd be willing to come out there and do that and just one thing led to another and I, and I got to do it. I had to audition uh, because there was a chance I could have a speaking role. And so I had to just put on a Southern accent and send in a video. And I didn't get that part, but I did get a speaking role uh, the third week of filming and they filmed it, but I hear it's been cut. So, um, but, but I'm still SAG eligible. I could be, a, uh, I got bumped up to principal cast for that last week. So there were some perks, I got a dressing room and everything, but, um, and so it was just very surreal because I saw the prominent moments, the, the famous moments in the courtroom where Emmett Till's uncle is asked by the defense attorney, do you see the men who kidnapped your nephew? And his name was Moses Wright. And he stood up and pointed out the killers in court. And there was no photography allowed in court, but photographer Ernest Withers worked for one of the black newspapers. He, he sneaked this photo of, M, of Moses Wright pointing at the killers. And to see that reenacted by uh, Glenn Turman, the actor who played Moses Wright, and to sit there uh, in the jury box and see him stand and point uh, was just very a surreal moment for me. And to see uh, Emmett's mother's testimony re reenacted from the witness stand, other dramatic moments, uh, other testimony, and then seeing the, the defendants sitting where they sat, looking so much like the original, that I just felt like I'd been transported back in time. And it was just an amazing experience to, to relive, to actually be in the murder trial in the same spot, the exact same spot was really something. So I'm from just outside of Chicago in one of the institutions of uh, 
of newspapers is uh, the Chicago Defender, which is a black uh, publication. Yeah. How often did you rely on their uh, articles and and covering the trial and, and the aftermath? Oh, that one I have a. Back then, I was instead of just digitizing these clippings, I uh, you know photocopied them. So I have just a large stack of files from the Chicago Defender. The Chicago Defender and Jet Magazine were part of the uh, Johnson, uh, or was Ebony was was Chicago Defender. I believe Chicago Defender was too part of Johnson Publishing, and they um, they ran that photo of Emmett Till's face. The white press wouldn't touch it, but the black press did and made sure that it got publicized well. And th they ran story after story, um, very lengthy, detailed stories as the case unfolded. So I relied on the Chicago Defender. And its sister paper, the Daily Defender, which I think started coming out during uh, this whole thing with Emmett Till. So there were two Chicago Defender papers, the Daily one and the Weekly Defender. And they both you know, supplied so much information for me. The book wouldn't have been nearly as thorough and nearly as good without the Chicago Defender. So I just wanted to, could you just talk a little bit about the book that you have coming out? Um, uh, a slow calculated lynching, the story of Clyde Kennard? Yes, Clyde Kennard's case isn't as well known today. It was known in its time, but it's he's been forgotten. So there's more of a challenge on this one. Um, to, and I, but I'm determined to make everybody know who he was. Clyde Kennard was, he was born in 1927, same year my dad was. So um, my dad passed away a few years ago. So I uh, kind of can envision him and what his, you know, what he would have been like age-wise over the last several years, because same year as my dad, a couple months difference. And uh, he was a very brilliant, I mean, he, he was just everything that deserved so much in every aspect of his life. He was a devout Baptist who was, everyone said he really lived his religion. He, he had compassion and love, never said a bad word about anybody. He was a six-year military veteran. He, he re-enlisted after four years. So he, he was four years, served in Germany after World War II to help teach denazification courses to children over there in Germany. Then he came back, got his GED, and then re-enlisted for two years and then fought in Korea. He was a paratrooper. And he's well-decorated from both uh, stints in the military. And uh, while, he, while he was in serving the second time before he went to Korea, he enlisted in the Chicago, or I'm sorry, in uh, Fayetteville Teachers College. So he got this opportunity to go to school. And, and so it really whetted his appetite for more. When he uh, got out of the military, he went to the University of Chicago for uh, two years. And while he was there, his father, his stepfather suffered a stroke in Mississippi, where he was from. Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And so he had to leave school and return home to help with the family farm. They owned about 160 acres. While he was home, he tried to uh, enroll at the unit, what's now the University of Southern Mississippi. And uh, this, this was just, you know, the Brown versus Board of Education decision that outlawed, uh, you know, declared segregation of public schools unconstitutional. That happened in 54. And so in 55, he was trying to integrate the university Southern Miss, and because he because they couldn't just say no, you can't come in because you're black. They had to come up with other excuses, or else they would have a lawsuit because of what of the Supreme Court decision. So they told him first that you know you didn't you haven't provided the right references we need, uh, your grades weren't good enough in school, or you missed the deadline. They kept coming up with reasons. He, he applied a couple of times. They finally turned him down and said what the excuse was. Well, he insisted on getting his rejection letter at the president's office at the university. While he was there talking to him and some others, he left. And when he went outside, some constables were there and they arrested him, said he was uh, driving recklessly on campus. And then when they drove him to the uh, police station, they said they found five bottles of whiskey in his car. Mississippi was a dry state, so possessing that kind of liquor, hard liquor was illegal. And so they planted the, the stuff in his car. So he was and in the State Sovereignty Commission, which was a spy agency. They already had spies out trying to find dirt on him so that they could reject his application. Their internal memos say, 
yeah, it looks like he was framed. This is clearly a framing. They didn't do it, but they were worried everybody else would think they did. So they were upset that these constables or somebody behind the constables even set them up to do this. Well, he got uh, convicted and then he got out of jail. Uh, he paid his bail and the NAACP was helping him deal with this and to appeal this case when, and he was by this point saying he was going to file a lawsuit to get into the school. So what happened the second time, he was framed again for a different crime. This one was more serious. He was a chicken farmer and uh, had to buy chicken feed regularly. Well, one day somebody stole five uh, bags of chicken feed from the Forest County co-op. And the person was caught by the night watchman. And uh, somehow these five bags wound up in Clyde Kennard's chicken house. Later that morning, the police came and said, we understand that you uh, asked this young man, Johnny Lee Roberts, to rob this store, so which makes you an accessory. And he said, I never did that. And anyway, he ends up getting arrested. This time he was tried and convicted again, but he was sentenced to seven years hard labor for, state, for being accessory to the theft of, of $25 worth of chicken feed. So he was sent to Parchman Prison. The guy who stole the feed just got probation, never had to go to jail. Clyde, while he was in prison, was, set, was sentenced to hard labor. He developed colon cancer while he was in prison. He was able to get surgery, and they sent him right back out to the fields, uh, wouldn't let him do his follow-up treatments. The, the doctor at the, uh, at the, at the, in Jackson, Mississippi, at the university hospital there, said he needs to come back regularly, and the, and the superintendent wouldn't let him. He got sicker and sicker and sicker. And then finally, uh, the governor, under a lot of pressure, commuted his sentence. He was released, and then he ended up dying six months later. I've interviewed uh, doctors about it, and they said back then colon cancer was beatable, and had the, he been diagnosed properly and treated properly, he would have beat it. So I, or could very well have beat it. So I call it a slow calculated lynching because they didn't care what they did to him as long as they got him out of the picture where they could, he wouldn't, you know, be able to apply to school anymore. So framing him and then just letting him get sick and die was basically a lynching. And so that's what this book is about. And the, the twist on this one is that in 2006, the young man, by then in his 60s, who had stolen this feed, confessed that he, you know, that Clyde never asked him to do that, that it was all made up. And so uh, because of that, there was a long drawn out um, attempt to get Clyde posthumously exonerated. And they, we went to Governor Barber to see if he would pardon him, and he wouldn't do it. And he had reasons. He said, I, I don't think I can have the authority to do it posthumously, but other governors had done that. It just had never happened in Mississippi yet. And so finally, it went to the original courtroom where he was tried, and the judge there, um, on the DA's uh, recommendation, the judge overturned the conviction in 2006. So he was posthumously exonerated and they've since named a building after him on the campus that he tried to get into. into. So there's a Clyde Kennard building on campus. His conviction was overturned. And this was an effort made by people of all along the political spectrum, very conservative uh, people in Mississippi to very liberal, black and white, all came together for this cause to, to posthumously exonerate him. And it was a symbolic thing, obviously, he was gone, but it, it was a very healing moment for Mississippi. And so I thought this really deserved a book. John Dittmer in his book called Local People, a very well-regarded book on the history of civil rights in Mississippi, he called this case the saddest of the civil rights movement. And when I read that and read that little bit about this case in his book, I thought, yep, that's my next book. I felt the same passion about this story as I did Emmett Till. So. Wow. So you are the marketing manager for Signature Books. I just thought here's an opportunity to maybe preview some books that Signature Books will be releasing this year. Yes. And I wish I was at the office where I could look at the uh, catalog because these have come to my mind right away. We, we are releasing our next, well, we, we do have a, a press right now. There's a biography of D. Michael Quinn uh by gary topping that's coming out and this is part of a of a biography series that we're doing that's these are very brief biographies that can be read almost in a sitting i mean they're about 100 and, between 110 140 pages we released one on harold b lee uh in the last month or so month or two and the next one is going to be on d michael quinn and that's a press now so that'll be coming out uh soon we also have our a non-mormon 
non-religion title that uh, should be released anytime now. It's called Discovering Us. It's, uh, it's published, it's, it's a book really by the Leakey Foundation all about uh, recent record, uh, uh, recent discoverings, dis discoveries in uh, human origins, about 50 dis discoveries uh, over the last uh, 50 years or so. And so it has nothing to do with Mormonism or religion. It's just that our uh, person who owns signature books, George and Camilla Smith, she's on the board of the Leakey Foundation. And uh, one of the people there had written this book and we became the outlet to sell it. And so I'm going to be excited about that. So if you like science and like learning about human origins from a scientific perspective, that's coming very soon. Todd Compton has a new book out. You know, he did the book uh, In Sacred Loneliness, The Plural Wives of Joseph Smith. He's got a companion vol volume coming. Uh, it's called In Sacred Loneliness, The Documents. So these are the primary documents, the writings of the women who Joseph Smith was married to. And he's edited these, and it's going to be a documentary history containing their journals and writings. And so we've got all of this on all these women. It was basically his source material for the first book. And so it's a huge book. I think it's like 800 pages or so, and that's going to be coming out the first half of the year. Um, and then we have um, a fi uh, uh, um, uh, uh, filler up, uh, his first name, Michael filler up. Yeah, I don't have everything in front of me. I'm going to be embarrassed now. But uh, he uh, he has a book of short stories coming out. He he published with us his last book with us was called Beyond the River. It was a, a novel that was highly regarded, uh, and now he's returned to us with some short stories. So if, if you like the fiction stuff that we publish, we've got that coming as well. And um, uh, we've got oh, I don't know the one that's. Uh, going to press shortly is a biography of Susan Young Gates, Brigham Young's daughter. Uh, he had, a, you know, he had several kids, and a few of them are, are well known. You mentioned their names; you know who they are. Brigham Young Jr. and and Susie Young Gates are probably the two. We've got a, a excellent biography of her that's coming out, uh, and so that's uh, basically done. It'll go to press, so we'll see that in the next couple of months as well. And that's pretty much the stuff we have coming the first half of the year. Um, the other stuff will get announced a little bit later, but our new catalog talks about these titles. So uh, we're excited about that because, you know, I, I, I'm excited that we have a subject about a prominent Mormon woman, you know, and she was had quite the life. And so we'll see that. I'm excited. Um, we just released the B.H. Roberts biography by John Silito in the last couple of months, and they both were they were contemporaries. And so it'll be exciting to have just shed, you know, both these books shed a lot of light on early 20th century Mormonism. And that's a period that doesn't get dealt with a lot. And so getting it through these biographies at least is, is going to give us a lot more knowledge about that time period. So we're excited. We have some good solid history coming. Uh, if you like fiction, we've got some great short stories by some thoughtful minds there. So um, I'm excited about everything that's coming. Oh, that sounds very exciting. Just, uh, Thank you so much for sharing, and it, it was kind of last minute for me to ask you that question. But uh, oh, the, the Gerald and Sandra Tanner book. When what's when's what's the plans for that? Yeah, it's uh, it's I, I don't know whether to say it's done. I mean, it's, it's, it hasn't been typeset, so there may still be corrections being made. I'm not sure, but that'll either be second half of the year or early 23. So we still it's it's not tomorrow, unfortunately. But yeah, uh, that'll be another one that'll. Uh, a lot of buzz so sure well that's very exciting yeah of course i had sandra on and we talked a little bit about the book uh coming out and so of course she'll be coming back on to discuss it once the new book comes out so i'm excited about that uh Devery, i just wanted to uh, thank you so much for taking the time at the very last minute to come on um i'm honored by that and i'm very excited about this uh upcoming mini series that will be debuting on uh thursday january 6th on abc as well as hulu and uh, just real quick, do you know, like, if, if it's going to be broadcast, like, in Australia or Britain or Great Britain and, and stuff like that? It will be. I don't know that it's going to happen immediately. I know recently they were talking about how they were in talks right then to um, get it into Great Britain and then with plans for a, for a global release. Okay. So whether it happens right away uh, or down the road, if it is down the road, it shouldn't be too long, I would think, within the next 
couple of months, but you know, I can't, I don't know, but I would think just seeing how these things normally happen, I don't think they would wait. It would take too long to get it all set up. They might, may have even gotten it all arranged now, but I, I don't know. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, I have people watching the show throughout the world. So I just want to make them aware of uh, this program as well to keep, keep an eye out for your local listings, um, Canada, Australia, Great Britain, um, the, and of course, many of the other countries that watch me, uh, keep an eye out for that. So Devery, once again, I want to thank you so much for coming onto the program. Do you have any final words you'd like to share with my audience? Well, I just think, you know, what you're doing is great. Uh, you approach Mormonism, uh, from this, uh, perspective of, you know, you're respectful towards it and towards your guests. And, uh, I think anybody would feel comfortable, hopefully coming on with you and that you're, you're a good place for that. And I, I, I really like that. I really like that about you. I think, uh, that's, that's a selling point that I think I hope everybody appreciates or can appreciate if they give you a chance. So I like what you're doing and like that you like our books too. And so that's help helps too, but that you discuss Mormonism with so many people from so many backgrounds. So I like that and that you could have, you know, me on talking about kind of stuff loosely related to Mormonism, but uh, that really, uh, that was, you know, like when I said, if it hadn't been for Mormonism, I wouldn't have done any of this stuff. That's really true. The, the just my journey uh, in Mormonism led to these other interests directly and so uh so i'll always be grateful for a number of reasons why our missionaries came by but it uh, certainly in time inspired me to write this book so but um i think you know just um what uh just the study of history uh, and talking about these things openly you know some people still aren't comfortable with uh looking at the black priest and temple denial as anything that, you know, they, they may not want to, they, they may let go of the folklore associated with it, but a lot of people still aren't comfortable saying that it didn't originate with God, because that would mean these prophets were wrong. And we just need to be able, there's, when I felt liberated, giving up all of that, thinking God was ever behind it. Um, and I don't say that from a perspective of, you know, this, this is something to embarrass the church or gloating over stuff like that. I, that's not me at all. Uh, but it's liberating giving up trying to fit God in a certain mold that just doesn't work, just doesn't fit. You just can't do it, at least with a conscience for very long, I don't think. And if you do succeed at doing it, you're doing all these mental gymnastics in your head that you're not doing yourself or God, you know, one bit of good. And so uh, give it a try, give up the garbage, retain the gems, and you can do that and you can be happy. So that's it, whether and I'm not, I don't just say that in Mormonism. I say that in any any religion. You know, faith should be a good thing. It should be leading you to better thoughts, better ideas, and a better life, and not to get bogged down and trying to make stuff that doesn't make sense. Trying to make sense out of it just doesn't work. <laughs> Amen to that. Well, I want to thank you again, Devery, for coming on. I just want to remind my audience to like and subscribe, and don't forget to hit the notification button to be informed when I do. Um, episode uh, is released. Also want to re remind everybody that um, we are now available on iTunes and Spotify. So we are a full-fledged podcast now. And I also want to uh, let you know that I'm going to provide a link in the description uh, for those of you who'd like to purchase the book. Um, I'll provide that as well. And also our Patreon is set up. So those of you who have already signed up, I want to thank you. Um, I will leave the link for my Patreon page as well. Um, Again, Thursday, January 6th, ABC Network. Uh, check it out and have a nice day.